makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power and power. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. This is First Voices Radio. Greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touched the earth once. I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse, and you are listening to an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio. Now it's 29th year broadcasting, and Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archiving and for listening to the archives here. Well, our first guest and only guest for the hour is Martine Prechtel, who is a leading thinker, writer, and teacher in the search for the indigenous soul in all people. And he is dedicated student of elegance, history, language, and an ongoing fresh approach. In his native New Mexico, Martin teaches at his International School of Bolad's Kitchen, a hands-on historical and spiritual immersion into language, music, ritual, farming, cooking, smithing, natural colors, architecture, or animal raising, clothing, tools, grief, and humor. He helps people from many lands, cultures, and backgrounds to remember and retain the majesty of their diverse origins while cultivating the flowering of integral culture in the present to grow a time of hope beyond our own. And Martin's books include Secrets of the Talking Jaguar, Long Life, Honey in the Heart, The Disobedience of the Daughter of the Sun, Stealing Benefacio's Roses, The Unlikely Peace of Kuchukumakik, and The Smell of Rain on Dusk, Grief and Praise. His latest book we'll be talking about called Rescuing the Light, quotes from the oral teachings of Martin Prechtel. It was published on June 8th, and more about Martin Prechtel can be found at Martin Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N-B-R-E-C-H-T-E-L dot com. 
and we will listen to Martin Prechtel. It's an honor to have you here, Martin Prechtel, and thank you for this book. It's very interesting, and I hold the energy here in my hand. And first of all, you know, just greetings to you. Rescuing the Light, quotes from the oral teachings of Martin Prechtel. And I'm wondering, Rescuing the Light, how did you come upon that title? And good afternoon, good evening, by the way. Uh, good afternoon, good evening. Oh, it's good to hear your voice again. It's a comfort to us all. Rescuing the Light. Well, Rescuing the Light, it's kind of actually, basically, it's not a translation, but it's a translation of an idea that comes from something that's very, very old. That light, for instance, with Tsutuhu people and from the Karis people that grew up, they have um, the idea that what makes something grow or what makes something live or what makes something flourish is the same thing that happens when the sun dawns or when a light, uh, a fire is sparked in the dark. And so the idea that, like, for instance, in Sutu Hill, they'll say when they've planted a cornfield, when um, when the, the sprouts come out, they'll say, his name has come out. The light is shining, which is the same thing they say when the sun comes up and they make their prayer. You know, everyone makes their prayer. I make my prayer. And so, and I always wanted to teach painting because I, you know, I was basically for many years, that's what I did. I was a painter and everybody wanted to learn. So we'll be doing it. And I noticed that the people, when they were painting, they were trying to like classically, like they did in Europe, always making paint so that it looked like, you know, something had a reflection of white light on it or somebody's cheek or a flower or something would stick out from the background. And I realized they were actually trying to apply light on top of a, a dark surface. And I said, oh, no, the way I paint is you just, you leave the parts <laughs> that are already light to begin with from the background of the paper or from the canvas. So I realized I was talking about the same thing as bringing the seeds back out of the ground, the sun back into the sky, the stars into the dark. And so I said, no, don't, don't apply light, rescue light, rescue the light. So... Um, that was one of the sayings that became kind of uh, popular in the school and people would always, you know, they would apply it to a thousand other things. So when I asked them, um, when when this book uh, came about, then I decided to uh, make that the very last thing I said in the book and um, make it the title because in this time, in this age, I mean, in my considered opinion, it's pretty nutty and pretty crazy what's going on in a lot of places. But there are also a lot of amazing people and amazing things going on that don't give much headlines. So I said, well, the main thing is not to obliterate the light that's already there. And so let's rescue it. So, yeah, that's where that came from. When I just flip the book open and start from that point and go forward or backwards, it doesn't matter. It's all in the balance. So the first thing that I flipped to was Indigenous Soul, the section about Indigenous Soul. And the quote says, I'm saying that the Indigenous heart can regenerate. I'm saying that the ear inside your heart can hear again as long as it has something worth hearing. <laughs> Pretty smart guy said that. I'll tell you what. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, let me say, the Indigenous soul in, in a person uh, is not only existing inside the person, but exists inside the ground inside all existence. So um, what's indigenous 
And this definition of indigenous, a lot of people use the word indigenous just in kind of more uh, in a racial way, but I use it more in a cultural way. But even farther than that, it's what uh, is the original human being and the original beings on earth. And I say, and this is what that quote is uh, referring to a bigger teaching that it's always listening. It's always listening, but not everybody else knows it's listening and not everybody speaks and acts according to the fact that something is listening. So when there's something inside the heart and the indigenous soul and knows how to be itself. It isn't like it needs a college course to learn how to be itself any more than a bear needs to know how to be itself, except it does have to have the context of the beautiful existence in order for it to develop into what it needs to be. So what I'm saying in this school of mine and in one of these sayings is that when you're hearing something that inspires that that part to jump up and live, then it can come back alive and reassemble itself, re-member itself back into existence so that it's not something that you say, well, that was then and this is now. I said, no, it's always there and it's always listening and it's always ready to jump up and live again. So it can regenerate. You know, they got all these scientists always trying to do all these limb regenerations and, and uh, body regenerations and everything. But the thing is, so much of life already knows how to not so much regenerate, but put itself back together again or remember itself back alive. So with that in mind, when one goes through one's life, uh, whatever you say, whatever you do, whatever we do, whatever we say, could be being listened to. And that very listening is what begins to regenerate that, that possibility of an indigenous integrity coming back into the world. That is very interesting. If I could think about it this way, for, for me, that whole thing and what you just said, the key word was regenerate. Is one able to regenerate the innocence that's within the soul? Well, I don't know about the word innocence, but intactness. I think I would use a word more like that. Innocence conjures up a lot of things that maybe I don't mean, but but yeah, I mean, I'm saying that it says here. I'm saying that the indigenous heart can regenerate. In other words, that's implying that the indigenous heart has suffered a great deal and been blown to bits by something that's not indigenous in order to mine it either the its earth or the body or the or take the wonderful in other words the part that people use in order to make business and to have vitality i say is indigenous so i say that heart can itself regenerate it says i'm saying that the ear inside your heart can hear again as long as it has something worth hearing i'm always so smart Alec, you know but it's true because that it's not so much an innocence of time because the indigenousness is not innocent. It's intact. It's in a, It's together. It's complete. And it's not like innocent, like it doesn't know what's going on in reality or the craziness that's gone on. But it can become a new kind of intactness that doesn't have to become brittle, hard, bitter, or cynical. That's good to hear. Thanks for clarifying that. I'm, I'm, you know, trying to use these concepts in, that I was taught in the Western world, and it needs clarity a lot, as I find. There's a, the next one I, I flipped to, Martine, was with the health, well-being, body. And it said a person... <laughs> I know, uh, we're talking about it already, but a person cannot be made well in a vacuum by isolation and from sickness. It is being surrounded and inside the natural world that makes us well, even with the sickness. 
Right. Well, I think probably it's discussing, we're discussing there the idea of wellness as opposed to the absence of sickness. Um, I have a lot of little sayings about that in this section. This is probably my most favorite section. And, and uh, a person cannot be well in a vacuum means that, you know, we live in a culture or we're supposed to be living in a culture anyway. And, you know, I mean, I don't want people to think that, you know, they should go around without their mask when they got COVID. But it's, the idea is, is that you're not going to be well just because you haven't got COVID. That doesn't mean what makes wellness. The idea is, is being surrounded by the natural world that makes us well. Because what makes people well is not people. It's the wild nature that is inside our body. And that basically what I'm saying is to the indigenous soul. And so if that indigenosity doesn't... Uh, have a place to live or is not represented, then you're not living in the world, you're living in a vacuum, it's dead. And that's why so many people are depressed. It's, you know, it's a bit mysterious when you see that, you know, a lot of places where they say, oh, we're getting back to normal. I said, oh, God forbid. I mean, <laughs> it was bad before, and now you can do it again. Uh, but um, they're living in a vacuum. They all of a sudden say, wow, I'm living in a vacuum. This is terrible. Well, stop living in a vacuum. Stop making vacuums. The world is a beautiful, amazing place. So wellness from sickness with indigenous rituals and uh, ceremonializations and even uh, plant medicines and other things is because all the things that are outside you are inside you, and those things can congruently you know, grow back together again. There's a saying about that in there about songs and, uh, and plants being powdered song. So that when they're taken or rubbed on the body, they search out their their own other refrains you know, and realign the body. So when one realizes that one's own body is actually the earth herself and that the earth herself is a body, then the one heals the other and the other heals the other. So both going together makes it so that you're not living, you know, like... Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's not even conceivable, really, to think of living in a vacuum because where where is there a vacuum? I mean, there's that's just an idea. But uh, people actually think if I'm isolated away from all of the people that my parents told me not to talk to, you know, it's like um, become racist or something. That I'm going to be pure. I'm going to be fine. Or something. This is crazy. It has to be that the place that you're living in has to be well for you to be well in it. So <laughs> I think probably, you know, what that was heading toward. But at the same time, um, you can't be made well like a machine. You know, we're not a bunch of tanks in a war. You know, just the boat falls out and you screw it back in, back you go to the war. But because what gives us life is what we're surrounded by. And that's what gives us our, our beauty and our deliciousness of being alive. We're talking with Martine Prechtel, the author of Rescuing the Light, quotes from the oral teachings of Martine Prechtel. Coming from the book, The Smell of Rain on Dust, the common sense that's in it, in, in this book that I'm reading now, the new one, Rescuing the Light, you mentioned COVID and how people are treating it or how it's treating you, actually. And when I think about it, is that humankind must awaken to the fact that their arrogance against nature is killing their bodies. That's in the human culture section. And I think about this, right. um, um, and of course I have thoughts, but I really want to hear your thoughts. I got a lot of them on that one. Well, you know, the, um, the natural idea, and we were just speaking of basically the same thing, is, is that 
somehow, I don't know how exactly, I've been trying to figure this out for years in my school, which is why I invented it, but to search around and try to re- figure out where people got this strange idea that somehow humankind was separate from the natural world or that the galaxies that they want to blast off to are somehow not part of the natural world (laughs) and that um, their own bodies are not natural. So when you try to create this kind of a synthetic um, techno garden and put people as a component inside these techno garden that has no relationship to the land around it, still all the components in those things that the people are making come from somewhere in the land and they're unhappy slaves. So when people are arrogant enough, I mean, it's an arrogance, it's also a grief in itself, but arrogant enough to think that somehow nature is a resource and that you just go there and you take what you want and you drink the water and you mind this and you cook this up and that that all just belongs to you because it's there. I mean, that probably comes from some quasi-Christian teaching, but I think that teaching in itself comes from some sort of arrogance. When you do that, you automatically mine in your own body, and you're mining the body of the future. So you're stealing from the future in order to outrun your bad mining practices of the past and trampling the present in order to get there, which is a saying in here, you know. And so the point being, I think, is, is that People don't understand uh, they're being arrogant. They don't know that that's, you know, getting what you want because you say you want it. That wanting is fine as long as it's uh, a wanting that's natural. But if it's an unnatural wanting and you're killing the earth doing it, you're killing yourself. And, you're ki- and you know, it's like the problem is now people don't even care if they're killing themselves just as long as I got what I want while I'm going. You know, it's like, oh, hold on a minute. Hold on. <laughs> Get a grip. <laughs> the the arrogance of wanting to, um, or not wanting to, but of just killing the earth, it's got to be recognized so that uh, people understand that they're killing themselves. And you got all these guys now that want to blast off and you know and grow potatoes on Mars and dig gold out of this and that. It's just more colonization of the same thing. Instead of staying put and say, let's be different, let's do it different. The earth. And the natural world is not a resource. It is the superior thing that you have to bow your head to and um, and learn how to do that, you know. So, I mean, that's very indigenous, and there's lots of leaders who have talked about that and said that, but I don't think too many people outside of the people speaking have really actually realized the scientific reality of that. I mean, if you look at the, you know, there has to be scientific for it to have any value, right, as far as these guys are concerned. I mean, for me, I don't need that, but first, that's fine. Okay, you're, the oceans are really suffering, okay? The ground is really suffering, the air is really suffering, and the people are really suffering. And hello, is that not because of all the stuff that's been... I say, I want what I want, so i got to mine the ocean. I want what I want, so i got to mine these hills. I want what I want, so I'm going to cut all this down. Hold on. So you're, you're making yourself into a person who has to live in a world where all this is cut down, where all this is missing, where you can't eat any of the food out of the sea. Well, we're going to breed people that can take it. And then you won't have people, you know, just have components. So until people realize that this is all an arrogance, and instead of crying about what they didn't get, but actually grieving about what they forgot, then you're going to have continual sickness whether that sickness is in epidemic form 
or whether that sickness is in the mental form that we see around these sicknesses. You know, I read someplace, and I'm not referring to any particular page, but I remember that when I was thinking about how machines are now making machines, it's like, no. whoa, what happened to the human? Where are we? How come the machines are doing our job for us? Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, the poor machines, when you think about it, you know, I've got a saying in there about concrete, you know, everybody said, uh, I had a student once who said, the miracle is the flower that comes through the concrete. And I said, no, the miracle is the poor enslaved concrete whose components were taken out of the hills and nobody asked permission to take the lime and nobody take, asked permission to take these stones. Nobody asked permission to take this additive and put them all together and make it into concrete. Nobody asked permission to lay this on the sidewalk where it's trampled every day and spit on and run over. And yet this concrete very delicately can still hold a wildflower in its cracks. It's the concrete that's the miracle, not the flower. You see, because the vitality of the wild is in the flower, but the vitality of wanting there is still in the machine. So all those machines that people create, they didn't ask permission of them to exist. Or if they, all those components wanted to be yanked out of the ground unceremoniously and kind of a rape, you know. So, I mean, there's lots of mythologies. I mean, the Mayans, the least of them, was talk about the uh, what you might call the revolution of matter and jumping up and, uh, you know, saying, no, I've had enough of you. And um, so when people start saying, oh, the machines are inanimate, the machines are, are don't have any of this, and the machines are... The, the machines themselves are a form, uh, an extension of that arrogance. And it's the same as uh, taking black uh, Africans and putting them on uh, sugarcane plantations in the South in the past and saying, okay, these people are, you know, just a resource and we can do what we want with them and we can breed them and do this, that, and the other thing. And, well, maybe I don't think so, you know. And so people say, well, then, you know, matter is dead, but not for indigenous people. I mean, I'm pretty sure that the mountains and the plains and the animals and the stones and the trees and the plants and everything that's out there is very much alive and not in a metaphorical way. Maybe their breath that they take is, you know, 50,000 years wide in its inhale, but <laughs> it's still very much alive. And we bow our heads and pray with it and to it and know that that's what gives us our life. Not metaphorically, but literally, because if you look at your bones, they're made of calcium and magnesium, and they have the exact same composition as the Alps, which are all made of little tiny shells called dolomites that, uh, you know, were in the ocean and were compressed like that. And so all the things that go into the body that we eat and uh, are, uh, have come down through the generations of um, evolution are actually the same as what's on the earth and what's in the earth. And so when this is forgotten, then we start to invent machines in order to keep ourselves distanced from that reality. But the machines are not going to work like that. And eventually, that's going to atrophy too. So what machines create is mental and physical atrophy in a human being. And so when you don't actually have to use a muscle mentally or physically, it stops being very resilient, doesn't do a very good job, as you can see around us. So it's very important for people to do their work for them to plant their food, to rejoice in the fact that there's life and uh, vitality out there. And the machines themselves, I'm not blaming the machines. The machines themselves didn't ask to be slaves. They, they were put there by people who, who are thinking in a way to try to escape being at home in a way that is well and the vitality of the natural world. You said atrophy, and I'm thinking, 
How does that affect, of course, you, you described how it affects the earth and, and humans especially. And atrophy would be, for me, uh, it creates, uh, well, there would be what takes its place of, of not being atrophied is, is, uh, is the anguish. And the anguish creates that sense of loss, it seems like. And again, referring to the grief. And yet we were expecting if that machine breaks down, then, you know, we can't put a bad... <laughs> We can't put a battery in it to get it going again. But so I, I really agree with what you say and that I getting these thoughts from just it creates the thoughts within each of us. And for me, it has done that. So when it came to uh, how am I saying this now? I just flipped to this part where the mind and hands. Oh, yes. Yeah, you don't learn much in a copacetic situation. You learn only by a challenge, failure and adjustment. Well, what more can you say? I mean, I don't know about you, but I myself uh, don't have a problem with failing at trying to do something that's worthy. Um, we've grown up in a culture where you get a menu of life, and you go to a school to learn how to do something and push the buttons, and, and then it's supposed to come out like you said. And then when it doesn't, you go, ah, you run around crazy, you know, trying to find somebody, some techie who can fix it. Instead of being an able human being who only learns by experiencing life. So I, in my little school and also my life itself, I, uh, I'm in love with making things with the hand. But in modern culture, that is looked upon as, as a, a lesser event. You know, there's something you do for therapy in order to keep yourself from falling apart. Or something you do as a hobby because you like doing it. But it's not like one of the major... Um, uh, things that people tell you you should grow up to become, even though many of us do. So when one is uh, capable of speaking beautiful words that makes the world jump back to life, it's the same thing as one's hands speaking by the things they make. Now, if one's hands is making, are making things that kill the world, ruin stuff, or make machines that are you know going to make machines, as you put and, uh, you know, make it so that people fall apart and don't use uh, anything in their body, well, then they're never going to be confronted with life. And so when you've got to be uh, wrestle whatever comes your way the best you can. And that's what makes not only strong, but also gives you a sense of humor, which is boldly lacking at the moment, I think, in this world. Um, to be... Uh, Everything just how you want it, all the food cooked down so your teeth don't ever have to work. You know, I, and this is probably a digression, don't need to be here, but just in case, I knew several dentists and uh, over my time, and there were a couple of those fellows. One of them was from the Cameroon in Africa, and another one was from Morocco. And they, in their internship, one was sent to uh, Alaska, northern Alaska, to uh, be a dentist for uh, different Inuit and Inupiaq people. And we were talking together, and he said, you know, it's the strangest thing. You know, where I grew up, all the people, they have the hardest dang teeth, you know. <laughs> I said, because they use their teeth for opening bottles and, and plant medicines and this and that. And they eat all this food, you know, that goes in there, and they got these teeth that are unbelievable. And, uh, and I went to Alaska, and all the old people, they had these incredible teeth, but the young people didn't have them because within one generation, they had started eating uh, this different diet. You know, they weren't eating muckpuck anymore. You know, they were eating marshmallows and, and, and Big Macs and all that sort of thing. Their whole facial structure changed. So you couldn't tell that they were Inupiaqs anymore because they weren't speaking Inupiaq. 
they weren't eating the food that makes your teeth strong. And the other thing is their teeth had a, a certain angle that was very different. When I went back to Africa, this one fellow, he, he says, um, I, had, I, I, I saw the same thing happening in a bunch of the villages where I grew up. All of these kids were eating all of these plants and these uh, foods that are no longer from us. And their teeth all of a sudden starts to be small. They start being birthed small and they atrophy. So I thought, he says, and the reason he says, as he said, was not because, you know, just because they were eating the bad food. It was because the teeth didn't have to negotiate anything. Everything was soft. Everything was easy made. Nothing, you know, you know, you could just like, you know, basically you're drinking breast milk till you're 90 years old and your teeth have no use. So in your mind and in your soul and in your body, if you have to negotiate things and run fast to get this and go lift that and go bring this wood and, and, you, and work all of a sudden is a joy. I remember reading a colonial um, thing from one of those crazy um, Puritans talking about all of these native peoples and the Narragansett and how they couldn't figure it out why all the women were so joyful going out to their fields to farm. It says it exists. They actually enjoy working. You know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> they enjoy working. They think of themselves as queens because they can work, you know, and they do it together. What's wrong with you guys, you know? So, you know, I yell at these guys three centuries later, but it's like um, the same thing goes with the machine. So when you have something else doing everything for you, if you don't have to confront life, and it's not even confronting life, it's, it's about wrestling it, you know? And if you don't have to learn by, oh, that didn't work, let me try this again. Oh, that didn't work again. Let me try it a little different way. Oh, that didn't work. Let me try it this way. You know what? I don't think this thing's anything good to do. Maybe I'll try something else altogether, you know, but never giving up. Always trying to learn. Always trying to learn. That's what makes your soul strong. That's what makes your hands strong. It also makes your creativity and your imagination jump. You know, my kids are always saying, Papa, how come you know how to do all this stuff? I said, because we had to, we didn't have anything when we were kids. You know, people didn't buy you toys and all that. You made this up and you did this and it sprang a leak. You plugged it and you figured this out. And then you just kind of get the principle of all those things inside your body and you know how to do it. Modern people, ooh, it's not, they're, they're not to blame. They're not to blame. They're just the one, they're being victimized by that. And then that's what kills you really fast, man. It kills you really fast because what first thing comes along warms you off, you know? Not that anyone's to blame, really, but, you know, it's really a sad thing. So it's very important not to take life on, but to get into it, you know, and, and do things and make things and love doing them. And also for the rest of the people to say you're doing something worthy by doing that instead of making you feel like you're a chump because you know how to embroider or because you know how to make beautiful beadwork or because you know how to make a pair of shoes or because you know how to uh, farm or grow food or to make this kind of thing or that kind of thing. Like you're not a lesser uh, class person because your hands work or your muscles, you know, function <laughs> or because you can, you know, milk this animal. Hey, come on. So the people, they are very capable beings, but what's happened to us is, is that we've come up uh, against the idea that uh, doing anything besides just sitting there and watching a broadcast is somehow a lesser thing. And people got lazy too. So, you know, that's why we got old people in the old days. Old people get, I mean, I remember I was wake up in the village, you know, and they say, 
you know, boys, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. You know, the sun is up there sweating in the sky, and you're sleeping here. You're still on the ground sleeping. Then the old ladies will come in. <laughs> the one I like the most is the old ladies will come. You little boys ought to be ashamed of yourself. The plants are out there growing and struggling to make more food, and you're in here snoring. Come on, get up, come on, let's get to work. You know? <laughs> so we would go get to work, and I loved that. I thought it was great. Takes me way back. I grew up with no toys. And yeah. and not just because we, we were poor in that material way. We didn't think of our, they, you know, they'd open the door and there was the horses. There was the, the river. Yeah. There was, you know, bugs and snakes and everything else. And I, <laughs> you know, right. They're still there. Yeah. 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 And, and I think about, you know, when what happened, what happened to that time? You know, we always go back, but th- that time is still available, I think. We kind of have this, and I open to this other part of the book here, Rescuing the Light by Martin Practel. And this part speaks to what I just said, the ancestral prejudice. Most personal preferences are ancestral prejudices disguised as original thinking. And we can learn more about our ancestry by tracing back family superstitions, food traditions, weird do's and don'ts, and irrational anathema. Childhood tales can tell more than genealogical records or genetic search. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll, I'll straighten that one out, that word. A-N-A-T-H-E-M-A, yeah. Crazy old uh, European word that always used uh, against people who are pagans. But I use it against the people who are not the pagans, you know, so the anathema. Uh, well, yeah, this, um, well, ancestral prejudice, I, I invent this word. Uh, I mean, other people have said it, but when I, I say ancestral prejudice, it's kind of like pre-digested thinking. In other words, there are things that um, people don't even realize, you know, like um, somebody will say, oh, Olives, they're not good for you. You know, so why are they not good for you? Well, you know, it's because they were taught they weren't good for you. You know, <laughs> uh, or uh, this thing is bad, or these things, these birds do that. And you, um, this color is uh, lascivious. You can't wear red shoes. You know, <laughs> families like that. You know, and uh, if you say, I wonder why my my grandfather never thought wearing red shoes was a good idea. Let's figure this out. You know, and then if you look into it, wow, this whole grief-stricken history shows up and then you realize that the people in order to survive they invent a um, what you might call a common self-made history that is a kind of a backbone a mental backbone that the people kind of apply their lives to and that some of them are very destructive and very bad as you well know and then some of them are more comical you know they're not really that terrible and they're not really make you so miserable or anything like that but to know yourself, you really have to understand that those prejudices that you are born with, not, like I said, the prejudging, pre, prejudice in the sense of prejudged, pre-digested, they're not, you can't get rid of them. You can't sanitize yourself. You know, that would be like being Hitler. You know, you're going to roll yourself. A lot of people go to India and sit on their butts and, and say, are, are a long time, which I'm not against. I'm not against religious discipline or spirituality. Don't get me wrong. But, you can't purify who you are or where you're from. You have to recognize it and see it when it comes up and then laugh about it. But um, ancestral prejudice uh, also, you might say, is what gives the uniqueness to where a person originates from. So if, like I, I'll give you an example. My father's father was half Moravian German, apparently, 
I'm not sure anybody knew that until recently, but, but his mother was a Lenape, um, you know, Delaware native who married this German in order to get to save her people. And this man, this crazy grandfather of mine, was a beautiful, big, old, funny guy. Um, he, every time he came into a doorway in his house, he would raise his right hand up and touch the, the crossbeam. And nobody ever knew why. And then my father, when he came back from the war, you know, he asked his father, he said, you know, Dad, why you why you always touch your hand up on top of the crossbeam? Oh, because I have a bean up there. A bean? <laughs> he had this little bean that his ancestors used to grow that they didn't grow anymore, but he still had one. And I said, well, why do you touch it? He says, because that's where I touch them. I touch my ancestors every time I come into the house. And so when I come in the house, you know, I'm at home. Plus, they told me that if I did that, I would never get warts. <laughs> and he never did get warts. <laughs> and, and, you know, and my father, you know, he's, he was more, you know, he was, a, he was the last child and he was more into the science and stuff. And then his old age, he changed quite a bit. But he realized that his father was, well, that was very sane, but it also taught him uh, so much about where they came from and what they were dealing with and how much they were trying to keep alive by the tiniest little funny thing. And everybody has stuff like that in their family. Everybody. And the terrible thing now with all of the modern age and everybody just watching the, you know, the screens and all that is they're losing those things, those, those unique little weird stuff that people, I, mean, I can go on. You know, I know this one guy, he grew up in uh, Kentucky or someplace, you know, an Anglo kind of guy, white guy. And he um, studied the way people closed gates. And his great grandfather uh, was actually a Shawnee. No, grandmother. I'm sorry. Great grandmother was a Shawnee. And she um, uh, and he noticed that his grandfather always made the gates to keep in the cattle and the horses a certain way. And so he's uh, crazy man. Actually, got a PhD and <laughs> studying how the people closed gates all across America. And he could tra- trace everybody's actual ancestry by the way their gates closed, by the way they fastened their um, and did the wire and the, and the wood and everything on their uh, livestock gates. And looked into it, and it's amazing. It almost went right with the language. Even when the language was lost, they still kept closing their gate the same way. So I think everyone has a little bit of that in, in their family. So I like I liked pointing that out to people because there's so much sadness, and everyone in America, especially, always trying to escape their ancestry, some of which is pretty rough. But at the same time, you can't outrun it. It's there. So even if you try to pretend like you didn't come from somewhere and you go to California and, you know, sanitize yourself and start, you know, just eating sprouts and saying, I'm a good person. That stuff's going to show up in your kids, man. You know, they're <laughs> you yeah. say, I'm not Jewish and your kid's born with a yamoka, you know, and it's like, <laughs> oh, my God, what happened? You know? <laughs> it's there. So you you have to kind of like dig it, you know, and start to realize it. And instead of uh, throwing it all away. Start to understand who you are and where you come from. And when you do that, then you can become an individual. Because if you don't do that, you will never become an individual. You'll just be a ship for all the grief of the stuff you don't remember or want to know about. It reminds me of a lot of things that we are go through our head. And again, I, I flipped through the book and, and it says, learn to say things you can't think, then learn to think them. <laughs> it's not always a good idea. I remember, yeah, well, yeah, well, sometimes people say to me, they say, you know, I'll be teaching in the morning, and they say, God, I can almost understand that, what you're saying, but I can't quite grasp it. I said, well, try to say it, 
say it out loud, you know, and then then you begin to grasp it. And they think that you have to think something first before you can say it. But that goes the opposite direction, too, because you've got all these terrible people, you know, teaching people to say hateful things, and then they start believing them. So I didn't, it wasn't a, a full thought, that one. But what it means to say is, is that when you're creating something or when you're building something, we have what we call a ritual building. Like, for instance, if you want to make a shrine or you want to make a ritual layout, you have to make the whole thing spiritually with your mouth by saying it out loud, even though the rest of the people looking can't see what you're building. You can still build it with the language, the language. Because the native people I come from, different types, they all have one thing in common, is they believe that the spirits are, are speaking this world alive. So their words are actually the things that we see. The stuff that humans invent is apart from that, but the natural world is all the speech of the holy, uh, symphonically, simultaneously speaking it into existence. So when we're trying to give a give, gift back to the other world, we try to say it out loud in a way that even though it's not seen physically where this corner goes or where this door goes or where this offering goes, or that, it, it comes out in a spiritual way that way. The same, by the same token, I teach the people when they're going to create something. Like I'm a silversmith, you know, and so I teach that to them at school. But, you know, whatever you are, uh, whether you're a weaver or sew things or make houses or whatever, by hand, you can go through the whole thing in your head before you go to sleep by and say it out loud or say it in your head. And you can make the whole thing with words. So you can make an, a gigantic thing with words. And then if you really want to get good at it, you start taking it apart with words. And once you're taking it apart with words, then the next day when you go outside and to go do it, you can actually make it because it just falls right into place. I was a guitarist for many years. I you know, was an artist and a guitarist and I performed a lot. And some of the music I played was not so great, but some of it was pretty cool. And there were some parts I could imagine, but I couldn't actually get my hands to do it. And so I would sit at night and I would actually make it happen in my mouth. <laughs> so I could say the sounds I was trying, going to try to play the next day and then actually see them going on. And then I would do it in reverse, go to sleep. And when I woke up the next day, my hands could magically do it. So somewhere between your hands and your mouth, there exists this friendship, the kind of like a marriage. And so if you can't comprehend something by abstractly thinking, you can either in your hands or in your speaking device of your mouth and your larynx in that area, it can come out and, and make it happen because it, it does it in a different place than the rest of it does it. You know, there's a nerve in the body they call a vagus nerve, and it, which is just an Italian word, which for means nomad, you know, <laughs> it means a wanderer. And this crazy nerve, man, is, doesn't have an actual physical presence, but it is a nerve impulse. And in order to sing, it, this nerve has to touch your liver and your stomach and your, all your different organs. And so that's why singing is so healing and why it heals other people when you do sing, like medicine men and medicine women, they sing. It's because it bounces off all these different organs before it comes out your mouth, you know, in, in the sound. So the original speaking of language by human beings, the indigenous speaking of language, is a form of musicality that is actually a very large, magnificent musical thing. 
So I always think that's very important. This is the problem is nowadays with uh, people not really, they're really getting illiterate, um, post-literate, I guess. But they're also, their speaking ability is also all gone to texting and abbreviatory uh, speech. As you can tell, I don't have that situation yet. I talk too long. but <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, that's what I kind of meant by that. No, that that is good. Martine, it's just an honor to have you here and, and you know, as a friend. And there's a lot of experience in, in what you put into the words here. And I think along the lines before I could ever speak English, that it was very difficult for me to put things into concepts. And when I ran across the one with a section holy in the book, um, Rescuing the Light, it says to reduce everything to a concept is destructive to the holy. And that's how it felt to me when I was beginning to learn English. Absolutely. Well, concept, you know, everybody wants to get a menu. And they want to get like a recipe for life. So they want to reduce everything. But, you know, what is holy on the earth is so magnificently complex, not complicated. Modern world people are complicated. But the natural world, which is the imagination of the holy, is complex, and its complexity will never be fathomed by people. You can get all the computers in the world, you know, and put them together, and the only thing you're going to discover is how incredibly complex it is and how beautiful it is. So when you try to reduce it all to a formula, that's that's another way of making a slave out of it, sticking it in a can and then putting it on the shelf so you don't have that bothersome natural world, you know, snapping at your heels again instead of letting it ride and roll. So natural speech pattern and natural thinking pattern has got to have movement in it, and it's got to have a constant addressing and a constant welcoming. And uh, so that, you know, you know, whenever you've gotten some, I mean, when I speak, you know, you can imagine trying to be a student of mine and taking notes, you know, you, you go crazy. But uh, <laughs> when the people that are always trying to, like when I send out, you know, when I made this book, What I did is I sent out to all my students, I said, this is all oral. So I didn't write any of it down. I just spoke it. And so I said, if there's anything that you guys actually wrote down or thought that was important and that you keep in your hearts that has been useful to you, could you send me what you think? And, you know, I got thousands and thousands of things. But nine times out of ten, they were reduced to this kind of new age paraphrase, which was definitely not what I was saying. So I started actually writing the book by by trying to correct what had been misheard. And so there, everybody wanted to reduce it to a bumper sticker saying, you know, or, or to something that was just a concept. And I said, no, don't reduce it to a concept. Reduce it to a, an opening. It's not information. It's wisdom that makes things jump and live, and then you learn more. So it's, it's in the modern world, that's like, that's almost illegal, actually, <laughs> because in business world, everything has to be conceptual. You know, it has to be down in the form, We're done. We do this. We conquered that uh, territory. Now let's go to get this. And it becomes very uh, mechanical. And uh, that's what's killing the soul. But it's, the problem is when there's never there's a person who has never really felt the joy of truly being alive, who is very efficiently and mechanically uh, functioning, then you get these, you know, these modern ex-president types who just, you know, blunder through the world and destroy everything. So, you know, you, we have to uh, have a real, live human being that is uh, uh, able to not just reduce everything and not so afraid 
that they don't have uh, everything contained, that they can live on a, on a, a sea that tosses really high, not because the, uh, just because of the mercy of, the, of fate, but because they actually know how to sail on it. So the idea is to know how to confront, or not so confront, but how to wrestle and swim in the sea, not to calm the sea, but to know how to go, you know, mm. because the world is natural and moving and beautiful. And uh, we have to know how to live in a way that we are living with that instead of like flattening it and then being sad because it's so boring and depressing. We have to blast off to another galaxy <laughs> to ruin that one, which, of course, they're not going to be able to. But I'm not worried about that. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait till they try to grow potatoes on Mars. Well, Martin, Hechetuelo, it is what it is. And you said it. And, and I really enjoy just talking to you through the radio. But, you know, just... In, we always say, we're going to visit, we're going to visit, but, you know, yes, things yes, get in yes. the way. But it seems like that's going to happen once the energy is right. So, but this visit for you with us here in in the studios and, and here on the radio, it, it brings what could be noticed through the book, but what could be heard also through this in this interview is that it does happen and it's real once we're able to put the thoughts out as indigenous folks and and I think it needs everybody. The earth needs all the indigeneity we all we all have deep down and that's what this rescuing the light reminds me of is that we all have it, we all need it, but maybe we need the elders in a sense to bring that seed out within us all. So good to have you here. Any any last words for the for the listeners? Well, I don't want them to be last words, but <laughs> continuing yeah. words till the next time. Well, one, Tilkison, there's a horse over here waiting for you. So whenever you show up, we'll go out on the, into the hills and uh, make some prayers and, and see the beautiful uh, mountainside. And so I just wanted you to know that. And the other thing is just that all the rest of the listeners and anybody, um, anybody who reads this book and uh, loves it, I wrote it for you. I didn't uh, make it to make myself a, a, a big shot. I wrote it because I saw the people is suffering so heavily and that the land is suffering even worse because the people in, in their suffering are not noticing that they have so much that they can do and could be doing and that happiness is uh, uh, something very, very available, but it is not a commodity. And that happiness does not come from getting what you want, but from loving the world we've been given. And so uh, the world that humans have created is quite ghastly in many cases, but that doesn't need to stay that way because we are people who can do things. And the best thing of all, I think, is to live and do things for a time beyond your own. Instead of saying, oh, I want mine now, I want mine. That's what created the problem in the first place. That's the basis of colonialism, and that's the basis of all depression. So if you can make something for something besides yourself, meaning that you love a time that you will never see, you may stand a chance of becoming a person in these days and worth descending from. But whatever it is, be well and be blessed. And uh, thank you so much for letting me come here and, and talk on your radio. And I can't wait to see you and, and do it some more. Thank you okay. very much. So, Oshimula says, basically, I want the people to live in, in and that, that's what I want for you too. You know, so it's good. Oh, thank you so it's much. Good. And that was Martin Pactel, who teaches at his international school, Bolat's Kitchen, which is a hands-on historical and spiritual immersion into language, music, farming, 
cooking, smithing, natural colors, architecture, animal raising, clothing, tools, grief, and humor. And he helps all kinds of people from all kinds of lands and cultures, backgrounds to remember, retain the majesty of their diverse origins while cultivating the flowering of integral culture, rescuing the light, quotes from the oral teachings of Martine Prechtel. And you can get hold of Martine Prechtel, who can be found at martineprechtel.com, M-A-R-T-I-N-P-R-E-C-H-T-E-L.com. So that's the latest. And we have a few minutes here, and I want to make sure that you know that, you know, when I hear people talking about indigenous peoples, whether you be an indigenous or not indigenous, um, we can say that, but it's time to show up. If you say you're indigenous, show up. Because Earth needs you as an indigenous person, regardless of what patriotism you have, you can put that away for a while and show up as an indigenous person, a human being, because Earth needs you. To us, there is no past. It's always been the present, and this is why it's urgent to me. It's not urgent, but not as passive. When I say this, is that our history and humanity and even our present is always put in the past. We're here. We're was so if you say that to me as an indigenous person, oh, you was you was here, Tilks, and you were here, but you're no longer here. It's important to put us in the present. We indigenous peoples are here, living, breathing, just as much as you are, because you don't want to deny your past as an indigenous person that's buried deep within that seeding of who you are. And with that, I'm going to say, Unshimaloye Oyate, Wani Owachichuelo, and thank you for joining us. I do this so that the earth, the people, cultures, all life lives. Wopila Tanka. Open as the endless
shame Just a reflection of the natural Take me home 